Good morning. We're continuing in Luke 9. We uh, put the passage kind of in between where we were last week and where we're going to be this week, and it kind of sets us up for part of what's going to happen. It's uh, time for the kids to go to Children's Church. We'll give them a moment to get out of the room before we get into the text. So, um, I had another one of those dreams last night. Um, must have been the pizza, but uh, <clears throat> it was rather odd. I got a few moments while they're kind of walking out the door. So anyway, so where I was actually at home, and my my father said, "Hey, Steve, you need to go to church." And I looked at my watch, and it was eleven o'clock, which is about the time the sermon is supposed to start. And I was like, "Oh no!" And ran to church, and it wasn't this building. It was very different, and it was packed. And there was this uh, like youth choir group ensemble thing going, and I'm like, I don't have my sermon notes. Sing another song. <laughs> and and for some reason, I ended up at the Kirchhoffs, which makes no sense because they don't live anywhere near the church. And and I'm trying to use their computer to pull up my sermon notes, and it wasn't happening. And so I, I tell you, this is strange. So I went to my office. I don't understand any of that. And I walk in my office and. All the computers are gone. So that, thankfully, that's when I woke up. It didn't get any worse than that. So let's go to God's Word this morning, and let's see what He has for us. Picking up in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd, uh, a great crowd met them. Sorry, I can't read again this morning. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher! I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and and shatters him, and he will hardly leave. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were doing all, while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help me to proclaim your testimony with simplicity this morning. Help us to know Christ and him crucified so that we might know Him more completely. I ask that You would demonstrate Your power through the Spirit, so that our faith would not rest upon the wisdom of men, but upon the power of God. Help us to see not only His work for us, but also His work in us, to change us from the inside out. And help us to believe so that we might begin to obey. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Not sure why I thought about him this week, but the hymn that I thought about was William Wallace. Now, put all of that Braveheart stuff out of your, out of your minds. 
Okay, that's not the real story of William Wallace. When you read the history books about Wallace, you see it's a little bit different than what the whole Mel Gibson thing is. So try to get that out of there. Uh, I thought about William Wallace because there was something about him, uh, a glory, so to speak, about him. And in a lot of ways, if there was an earthly Messiah, he kind of would have been it because he looked sort of the part. William Wallace was a huge man. He had to be because the sword that he used, the double-edged sword, was five feet long and had a handle of another foot. So he's wielding this six-foot-long sword in battle. So he was probably about six foot five, very large, much larger than the average person of that day in Scotland. And he had rather sort of strange beginnings because initially he was an outlaw. But he became one that the people of Scotland began to rally around precisely because he was a pretty good strategist when it came to conflict. He was able to identify the proper terrain in which to engage the English troops to minimize their advantage and maximize his advantage. And so he did this particularly at places like Stirling Bridge. Glory. A man almost like a messiah, a prince, a warrior, someone that the people could rally behind and, and go to war with and somehow throw off this oppressive power that is represented by King Edward of England. Glory. Surrounded by glory. And as we pick up this story, Jesus is, in a sense, surrounded by glory. The night before, he had been gloriously changed at the transfiguration, but we have to understand that this is not first and foremost about glory. The big idea is that Jesus triumphs over evil, not through his glory, but through his suffering. Suffering. We're going to pick it up with this idea that we saw last week from Luke 9.22 where Jesus says that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And so we're going to pick up with that idea of some of the things that he suffered before we, we get into uh, really what as, happens as a result of that suffering. And Jesus suffered due to unbelief and pride. Okay, there are a number of great things that happened recently in Jesus' ministry. In this one chapter, we have Jesus sending out the apostles, them healing people, casting out demons, proclaiming the good news. We see that Herod doesn't know who this Jesus is. We see Jesus feeding 5,000 with a couple of fish and a couple loaves of bread. We see Peter confessing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Glory. Good stuff. He's returning from this high point of ministry, and it all seems to kind of fall apart, just like it all sort of fell apart for William Wallace. Because it seemed that when everything was going good, Edward, King Edward of England, decided that he would bribe the Scottish nobility, and everything changed. Without the nobles, the cause was lost, and England began to reverse the victories that had been won by William Wallace. And so here we see this great a, a, a foreshadowing of the great reversal that's going to take place in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So there's a crowd. And according to Mark, who has a parallel account that's a little lengthier than this, which is interesting, by the way, because usually Mark is streamlined, but in this particular passage, he's expanding what we find in Luke. Okay, I don't know why Luke was a little thinner on this one, but nonetheless, we find from Mark that there's also an argument 
And this argument pertains to the boy who has an unclean spirit. Because what had happened is that the father had brought him to the nine disciples who didn't go up on the the, uh, mountain with Jesus. And they, who before, when they had been sent out, had done these things, now they are unable to cast out the demons. And not only that, but there's also this argument that erupts with the scribes who were probably mocking them and making fun of them and as well as criticizing them for thinking that they had power over demons. Who are you, you ungodly Galileans, they probably said. And as into this, Jesus comes and the Father runs up to him essentially and says, I beg you, just as he says that he had begged Jesus' disciples ahead of time, this man is desperate. Okay, This is not someone who's just there on a whim. He is desperate because he sees the Spirit seeking to destroy his only child, his only son, his only heir. That's his life. The Spirit would, it would mimic epilep- uh, epilepsy. He would have convulsions. He would foam with the mouth. But it would often happen in dangerous places, such as falling down by fire. Okay? I can't help but be reminded of Elder Riggleman. Boy, I can't pronounce anything today. And that was one of the things that we were worried about, that he would fall down, that he would pass out in a dangerous place where he could knock his head. Locker render himself not just passed out, but in danger. Okay, So this is a dangerous thing that is going on with this child, and the text is clear that it is caused by an unclean spirit, an evil spirit, a demon. Jesus then raises this brief cry, O faithless and twisted or perverse generation, how long will I have to put up with you? Imagine that for a second. The weight of sin and misery hits Jesus in such a way that he suffers from that sin and that misery and cries out. He's suffering due to their unbelief primarily. We see this far more clearly in the account found in Mark 9. Because Jesus says to him, if you can, okay, the father, the father in, in, uh, in Mark's account includes this, heal this, heal him if you can. And so Jesus responds, if you can, All things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Meaning, he believed some, but he he knew that there was still some unbelief remaining in his heart. The father had some measure of unbelief as he comes before Jesus. Now, he wasn't up on the mountain. He may or may not have been part of the 5,000. We don't know where he came from, but he certainly heard about what Jesus has been able to do, and that is exactly why he comes to Jesus and his disciples. He believes to some degree that Jesus can do this. Perhaps he doesn't believe Jesus will do this. Or perhaps he doesn't believe that Jesus can deal with an evil spirit. We're not sure what what the unbelief of his life was about uh, in this particular instance but he is marked by some measure of unbelief. 
We also see the scribes here who are resisting the kingdom due to their own unbelief. And we see sort of this twistedness of this generation because they're twisting true religion into something that it's really not. And so their unbelief twists the truth. Jesus is weary of all of this. But it's not just them. We also see the disciples. The disciples are also marked by unbelief. They, they believe they've shifted, you know, perhaps it was that they were successful earlier on in this chapter it, when they went out, when Jesus sent them out, and perhaps they had forgotten what was necessary for them to actually be able to do this. And that is reliance upon the name, the person of Jesus himself. They had moved to a position of self-sufficiency. We see this when Jesus responds to them, again, Mark 9. You're probably wondering, why didn't I just go to Mark in the first place? I don't know, because we're, because we're going out of Luke <laughs> by George. Um, he said to them, this kind, meaning this kind of evil spirit, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And so their unbelief is manifests itself in the fact that they were not praying. How similar to our unbelief, isn't it? Often we fall into self-sufficiency, don't we? We start to think that we can live the Christian life kind of without the help of, of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and we stop praying and we start to go on cruise control, and then something like this will happen and we realize what a mess we are. Okay, Their unbelief, their pride, was manifested in their lack of prayer which resulted in their inability to do that which Jesus had commissioned them to do, which was the casting out of this particular demon from the boy. Not only that, but we see that it is their unbelief which would blind them when Jesus speaks to them. Imagine for a moment being one of the big three who had been up on the mountain, hearing the voice of the Father. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus addresses his disciples, and they, they listen, but they don't hear. Well, maybe it's the other way around. It doesn't matter. They don't understand what he's saying to them. And the reason they don't understand is, is rooted in their unbelief. Unbelief blinds us to the truth of God. It keeps them, and just as it keeps us, from understanding Jesus' instruction. And so, therefore, Jesus is frustrated. He is perfect. Now, catch this. He is perfectly righteous, yet still angry at unbelief that is around him. He, he is angered by sin, including unbelief. Okay? Righteousness hates sin. There is a righteous kind of anger toward sin, and that is exactly what Jesus has. That is exactly what Jesus expresses. And when we come across similar situations, we should have a similar kind of anger. Anger is not always wrong, which is why it says in Ephesians, in your anger do not sin, or be angry and sin not. Okay? So he's frustrated with them. 
Partially because they, the people are astonished. Partially because the people are marveling. The people are caught up in the glory of what is happening, but note what's not happening. They are not entrusting themselves to Him. It's sort of like, I mentioned in Sunday school, Benny Hinn. Now, for those of you who've watched any, any of the Benny Hinn, there's a whole lot of falling down going on. There's a whole lot of glory. There's a whole lot of, they want you to believe, healing going on. But what's not happening is you're not seeing repentance going on. There's not the, 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 the call to faith going on. And so it's all about the glory and not about the repenting. They've bought into what the Lutherans call a theology of glory in contrast to the theology of the cross, a theology of suffering. And what happens is that we are prone to fall for the theology of glory because we want glory, because we want that which is good, because we want to have an easy Christian life. But in reality, the gospel calls us to a life of theology of the cross, precisely because our Savior did not save us by His glory, but He saves us by His cross, the suffering. So they're astonished, they're marveling, they're caught up. And here it is, we didn't, we, we didn't read this, but the very next thing that happens is the disciples begin to argue about who is the greatest. These were the same guys who couldn't cast out the demon. And now they're fooling themselves. Which one of us is greater? They're caught by pride. And they don't recognize it. So Jesus suffered due to pride and unbelief. The people are attracted to glory, but Jesus was also called to suffer from our sin. Let's go on to the second part of this. Is that Jesus suffered betrayal at the hands of friends. Okay, you know, in a sense, everyone's on cloud nine. There, there's astonishment going on. There's marveling kind of going on. And that is when Jesus makes these rather sober statements about the Son of Man, that He will be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus once again refers to Himself as the Son of Man, the title that He takes from Daniel chapter 7, which is why we read it this morning, or a part of it this morning. And what happens in Daniel 7 is that Daniel sees four beasts in succession, the beasts that become increasingly more powerful and more hideous. The fourth beast was the beast that was walking around when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, Rome. And it was during the fourth beast, okay, the reign of the fourth beast, that the Son of Man appears. Now, in Daniel, we do not see necessarily the suffering of the Son of Man. What we see is that the Son of Man receives power and authority to judge. He receives a kingdom that will have no end. Glory is what we see in Daniel 7. So why is it? that Jesus is saying that the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. I think it has to do with what goes on in that text. 
Because it talks about how the citizens of God's kingdom are handed over. And when it's more clear in the Greek, the parallels between Daniel 7 and this particular passage, they're handed over into, delivered into the hands of men. It's the same language. The, uh, the unity between Christ and his people is so strong that what happens to one happens to another. And so Jesus says that not only will his people suffer at the hands of this, the horn that speaks blasphemy, but also the Son of Man himself will suffer at the hands of the horn that speaks blasphemy. So he will be delivered into the hands of men, meaning he is betrayed. That's what happened to William Wallace, too. It probably wasn't Robert the Bruce. It was probably another one of the knights that served with Wallace. Because the Bruce was not fond of the king of England at that point in time. He'd begun to go back in all of his deals. But nonetheless, someone close to William Wallace betrayed him, turned him in, delivered him into the hands of England that he might be killed. But when it comes to the Son of Man, this is a scandalous thought. How can it be? How can the Son of Man, the one who rules over everything, the one to whom judgment is given, how can he suffer betrayal and fall into the hands of men? This was a scandalous thought for the, for the disciples to hear. There's a sense in which it's no wonder they didn't believe this, because this goes beyond what they thought they ever would have imagined. But it's rooted in that union, that unity between the Son of Man and the saints. Mark records, again, not only that he would be delivered into the hands of men, that he would be killed after he was delivered into the hands of men. For instance, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So Jesus not only suffers from our sin, but we will see that Jesus suffers for our sin. He is betrayed as the substitute. Let's go to the last part of this. Is that Jesus triumphed over evil for his people. Okay, William Wallace, I think the last time I'm going to bring up William Wallace. But his death was really the last straw for Robert the Bruce. In fact, it's it's interesting because when I went to England and I went to the old parliament building and I could stand there and there's the place where William Wallace supposedly stood when he was condemned to the death penalty. Here's the, and there's another one. Here's the place where Charles, the king, was condemned by parliament. So, the historical reality kind of, of it all, you know. Um, that was the last straw that, that he was going to be drawn and quartered. Sort of sent Robert the Bruce over the edge and he went back on his deal with the king of England and gathered the nobles behind him and was able to finally shake off the shackles that had enslaved them from England for so long. But something even greater happens here. Jesus not only dies, he rises on the third day to reign as the Son of Man. We alluded to that last week. When we, when we went to the trial of Jesus and they asked, are you the Messiah? And he says, you will see the Son of Man arriving on the clouds. He's taking up his reign with his death and his resurrection, not some future time. He reigns 
now. So what are we to think of this? What are we to think as, as, you know, as we read about these miracles? And some of what we need to think about here is that the miracles he performed pointed to him as a Messiah that we can entrust ourselves with. Okay, I'm actually going to get to the miracle in a few moments here. But, but that's part of what they show. They show his compassion. They show his tenderness that we can trust him with who we are and we can trust him with the things that plague us. He cares. He's powerful. But these miracles are even more, they're an appetizer, so to speak. They're a foretaste. They're an intrusion of the life that is to come. They are an undoing of the curse for that particular person at that particular point in time. So what happens? Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. And so we see here that this is no ordinary case of epilepsy. This was not merely the superstition of the dad who thinks that there's an unclean spirit because Jesus actually rebuked an unclean spirit. An evil spirit. One that is not welcome in the presence of God. Jesus believed in the reality and in the power of demons. And since he did, so should we. Okay? But he did not live in fear of these spirits. He censured the spirit. He's the son of man. He has power and authority over these things. They cower before him. And so this word that means uh, rebuke or censure can also mean the idea of punishment. Jesus is dealing roughly, so to speak, with the evil spirit. He's not going, pretty, pretty, please, can you leave this boy alone? He is exerting his authority as Savior and Lord to set this boy free. Then it says he healed the boy. The boy is restored to health. So we're not exactly sure exactly why he rebuked the unclean spirit, and healed the boy. It could be that the boy had epilepsy, but there was an unclean spirit who was making use of that at particular points in time to oppress the child and try to destroy the child. We're not sure how all of that sort of plays out, but we know that Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and he heals the boy and returns him to his father. And so as I read this and I think about the connection between what just happened and what Jesus is about to say to his disciples is that the healing of this boy is a direct result of the impending death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It cannot happen apart from the inevitable reality, not by fate, but by the will of God, that Jesus is about to be killed as a substitute for sinners and to rise on the third day. No death and resurrection, no healing miracles, no casting out of the demons. Okay? Because his glory, apart from his role as Savior, results only in judgment upon the wicked, which is what we are. He has to die if he is to heal. These two things are not separated, but they are joined in the will, in the counsel, in the plan of God. Note part of the irony here. Who was the child? 
the Father's only Son. This man's only Son could only be restored to health because God's only Son would die for sinners. I love gospel irony. Luke put that in for a reason. Luke is very careful about what he puts in and what he leaves out. And of all the things he could have left out, when, he, when we know he left some things out, he made sure that was in there. That this was the only son of the man. And it, was, and it is only because of the only son of God, the unique son of God, that he is going to be healed. So we find here that there's a, there's a foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus on the cross overcomes the enemies of God. The fight still continues, but here's the good news. Jesus wins. Colossians 2, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Okay? i got moments. When we talk about theories of the atonement, what Jesus did on the cross, um, it's easy to think that Jesus did only one thing on the cross. A.A. Hodge talks about it in terms of a diamond. There are many facets to what Christ did upon the cross. And so what often happens is that there's a, a theory of the atonement called, you know, Christ the victor. I won't say it in Latin because most of you wouldn't know what I was saying anyway. Christ the victor. And there's an element of the atonement that is true. Christ wins, Colossians 2. But if that's all you have for the atonement, you don't have enough for the atonement. We have to have Jesus as the substitution, as the substitute, as the one who bears the wrath of God so that we can be forgiven by God. But we can't also neglect the fact that Jesus does overcome his enemies. He triumphs over them. He disarms them. That is significant. We need to know that. We need to believe that. But Paul, the same one who wrote that, also said that the the devil still is there. The devil still has power. We still fight against the devil. So we face a very real enemy who is still trying to destroy God's people. What's going on? Back to Genesis back to Exodus and the conquest, which is foreshadowed in Genesis. The Canaanites were left in the land to test the people of God to see if they would obey. Go to, go to Judges chapter 2 and you'll see that. Okay. The evil one is left in the world in part to test us as to whether or not we will obey our Father in heaven, and his Son who has redeemed us from Satan and slavery to sin. That's why he's still there to bother us. He's a thorn in our sides. Spiritual warfare is real. Paul didn't write Ephesians, that part of Ephesians 6 just for kicks. It is a very real thing that we all experience 
But the only reason we're able to put on the armor of God is because Jesus had first put it on and had prevailed. Paul gets many of those things that he just talks about from Isaiah. When God puts on his armor to come and deal with his enemies, that's where he gets it from because Jesus put it on when he came. And Jesus overcame his enemies, not with the broadsword like William Wallace, but with his death and his resurrection. Not by glory, but by suffering. And so we take heed, we, we have to heed what Paul says in Ephesians 6. We are to put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. We need to do that. We can get caught up in all of this uh, sort of, you know, oh, you know, what does what each thing do? But let's just get to the idea of what each thing is. Truth. We need truth. So that we can separate it from the lies. If we do not put on that part of the armor, so to speak, that talks about truth, then we are prone to deception. We will not stand against the deceitful powers of the evil one, his schemes. Revelation 13. You have the persecuting power of the first beast, the deceptive power of the second beast. We need truth, God's truth, to stand firm. Not only that, righteousness. Not speaking about our righteousness, but we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be imputed to us, to stand, so to speak, as that breastplate to protect us from the mortal blows that the evil one seeks to strike against us when he brings up our sin and wants us to feel like we are condemned. We need to remember that it is the righteousness of Christ that makes us stand and not our own. Talks about feet shod with the peace of the gospel. We need to know that we are at peace with God if we're going to stand firm. It's sort of like if you're stuck in the middle and you're afraid, you're going to run. But the, the knowledge that you have peace with God means you're not stuck in the middle. He's behind you. He's with you. You're on his side. You're not just a, a mercenary, you know, stuck in the, the whims of war and what will happen to you. He's on your side. Christ died for your sins. He treasures you. He's not going to back off and leave you to die. Peace with God. Faith. Part of the armor is faith, trusting God. That what he says is true, and part of that is that he loves us. Salvation. The helmet of salvation. Because again, he attacks us at that very point so that he's trying, because he's trying to get us to wander from the gospel. that he might deliver mortal blows. And so we need to remember that we are saved by the grace of God through our faith, not by our works, lest we boast, lest we become self-sufficient, lest we cease to pray. He talks of the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of truth. We need the Spirit and the Scriptures. 
If we're to stand against this one who still comes against us, we need the Spirit and the Scriptures. One brings us the truth and the other illuminates the truth so we might understand it. We desperately need it. But then, then Paul says, praying in the Spirit on all occasions. Back to the problem of the disciples. Prayer is part of putting on the armor of God and waging in spiritual warfare. It's not just your wish list from God. It's part of how we stand firm against deceit, against temptation to sin, all of these things. If we don't pray, we're in trouble, folks. Serious trouble. We will not stand against the wiles of the enemy if we're not prayerful. Kind of an interesting ride, though, wasn't it? Going from a boy with an unclean spirit to the recognition that we still live in a condition of spiritual warfare. And we need to live in light of it. So the Son of Man had to suffer. Righteous though He was, He suffered from our sin. It created burdens, frustrations, and even more for Him. He would eventually have to be handed over to men to die as a blasphemer and a rebel, suffering for our sin. His glory doesn't bring us to repentance. The suffering of the Son of Man is what brings us to repentance. We needed Him to suffer so that we might experience salvation instead of judgment. But His victory also means that you now can fight sin and can fight Satan where you couldn't before. Before you obeyed Him, as it says in Ephesians 2. But Christ's victory means that you can stand against the enemy. You can begin to obey the One who made you, who saved you, and who keeps you. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage, there's just things that challenge us who come from a scientific mindset, a modernistic sort of mindset that really kind of... Do we really believe in evil spirits? But more importantly, do we believe in one who is greater than those. So help us to more fully put our hopes in Christ because we know that He can and He has overcome them. That He has disarmed them. And teach us to live in light of that fact that we might recognize the, the temptations to sin and to deceit that we experience and that when we face these, that we would put on the armor of God in all of its fullness, lest there be an opening for Him to strike. We thank You especially that Jesus wore it first. We have the King's armor. We have the King.
So help us to live as people who do and not fearful, not doubting, not proud. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.